Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And then I have some stuff in a blog that I started, I don't know, maybe two and a half years ago. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. So today is Tuesday, August 24th, 2021. And I want to talk in a little more detail about something I referenced in passing, really, in the last two episodes. And that was a decision on August 3rd of 2021, just a few weeks ago, by the Division I Board of Directors, and then I believe it was approved by the Board of Governors at that August meeting, that fundamentally changed the investigative process for these independent complex cases that the Commission on College Basketball Report recommended in April of 2018 arising from the basketball scandal that resulted in some criminal cases in the Southern District of New York. One of the fundamental purposes of those recommendations was to segregate these really important high-stakes cases from the rest of the body of NCAA investigatory work and have basically two completely different tracks. The first track was through the old process, the regular process, and the NCAA Committee on Infractions, which is made up almost entirely of NCAA insiders, would use the procedures already in place and the resources already in place to handle these ostensibly smaller issues. And in that process, the Committee on Infractions relies on the investigative work of the NCAA's in-house enforcement staff. And that's the enforcement staff that has been the subject of scrutiny, criticism, and ridicule for decades because it operates like a star chamber, doesn't follow any principles of due process, and has resulted in a body of infractions decisions that are internally inconsistent, incoherent, and unfair. And it was precisely the shortcomings in that process that led the Commission on College Basketball to recommend this entirely separate independent track, not only for the adjudication, the formal hearing and the adjudication of those matters, but for the investigation of those matters. And the reason that was important to the Commission on College Basketball is that the investigative process was really the starting point in this corruption in the old system. And they wanted a completely independent process where you had completely independent, at least on paper, completely independent decision makers and investigators looking at the evidence. And when you go back and you look at how the Commission on College Basketball characterized the independent resolution process and the role of the investigative process, it's almost impossible to reconcile that recommendation with what the NCAA actually implemented. So let me just read the operative paragraph here from the report of the Commission on College Basketball. This was like a 55-page report, and it's an interesting document. They were on a real short timeline. They only had six months to do their work, and it really kind of swings wildly from 
statements that seem to acknowledge the problems in the system and then back to uh, status quo defenses of portions of that system. And when you read it, you get thematic whiplash. I mean, you read a, a paragraph like the one I'm going to read you and you say, yes, yes, yes. And then you go two pages later and read a paragraph that is just as deferential to NCAA inside dealing as the prior provision was critical of it. So anyway, let me read you this language because this goes directly to what the commission envisioned for this new separate independent track for complex cases. The report says, first, the commission recommends that the NCAA establish two tracks for addressing rules violations, one track for complex cases and a second for all others. The current NCAA process would remain in place for the second category of cases, but the NCAA must create an entirely new process for investigating and deciding complex cases. Most significantly, the commission recommends that the Committee on Infractions appoint a panel of paid independent decision makers, such as lawyers, arbitrators, and retired judges. These decision makers would form a pool from which three adjudicators would be randomly selected to resolve each complex case. Members of the panel would serve for a term of five years with some shorter and longer for phasing in. The panel would operate under the rules of the American Arbitration Association or analogous rules. Its decisions would be final and binding, subject to review only under the Federal Arbitration Act. Volunteers and members should not decide whether fellow member institutions have violated NCAA rules nor the appropriate punishment for those violations. It is time for independent adjudication of the NCAA's complex cases. And what I'm going to do is look at how the NCAA took that language and then implemented these recommendations in a way that provide very few of the protections that the commission recommended and undermine the very independence that underpinned at a values-based level all of these recommendations. And then I'm going to talk about what happened at that August 3rd, 2021 Board of Governors meeting with respect to the changes in the investigative process, because those changes essentially made the investigative process in this independent track completely meaningless because they require the complex case unit and the independent panel of adjudicators to accept the factual findings and the investigative work of the enforcement staff that work at the NCAA National Office that are under the NCAA National Office's thumb and are accountable to no one, to no one. But before I get to those issues, I really need to talk about the overarching problem with the entire infraction and enforcement's process. And that is the United States Supreme Court's decision in NCAA versus Tarkinian in 1988. And I titled this episode, The Curse of NCAA versus Tarkinian, because no matter what the commission recommends, no matter what external regulators suggest, and this discussion about the unfairness and the corruption in the NCAA's existing enforcement and infractions process prior to these recommendations by the Commission on College Basketball goes back for decades. And it has been universally recognized and agreed that the infractions and enforcement process is just a train wreck and it operates like a secret national police force that reports to no one. And if a case makes it all the way through 
the infraction process, you get a published opinion, but virtually nothing about what happens in the process, how they gathered the evidence, who they relied upon, what deals were made. And there's simply no way to look at that process and determine whether it is the product of reliable, fair decision-making. And the reason for that, the overarching reason for that is this Tarkanian case. And I've said in prior episodes that this Tarkanian decision in 1988 was one of the most consequential events in the history of the NCAA, and it gets very little attention. In my evaluation of the history of the NCAA and these really important milestones that this podcast has discussed, the Tarkanian case may be the most understated milestone in at least the modern history of the NCAA since the television era. And it's post-Board of Regents. So you had this marketplace that's running wild. And this is just on the backside of the Walter Byers years. And Walter Byers ran that place with an iron fist. And he had a dictatorial approach to infractions and enforcement. And when you read his book, his 1995 book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Exploiting College Athletes, he spends an entire chapter on the enforcement process and that Kentucky point shaving scandal and how he built an enforcement and infractions police state. And he talks about that with a sense of self-righteous pride without any discussion about the complete absence of due process. And the NCAA did not like Jerry Tarkanian. And Tarkanian was the coach at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, which is a public school, and that's important. And Tarkanian was a very successful coach, but he was perceived as a bad actor, a rogue actor. And I believe there's some baked-in racism there. His rosters were almost exclusively African-American, and he took some high-risk kids who weren't going to get a chance at other schools. And rather than being viewed as a hero and a civil rights champion, Tarkanian was ostracized, and that's in some ways the product of the time. And if Tarkanian were coaching today, I think he would be viewed much differently. But that's a discussion I'm going to talk about when I get closer to some of these race issues. But the NCAA did what it does best. It came in and started swinging its wrecking ball and ruining lives and making unsubstantiated allegations and basically ruining Jerry Tarkanian's career and his reputation. That was their goal, and there's no question about that. And some of the information that came out during the trial was really shocking. And I think that case alone, now in hindsight, people who look back on that with some objectivity really see how nasty and mean-spirited the culture and climate of the NCAA enforcement and infractions process was then. And I don't think that's changed. I think it's been spit-shine for public consumption. But I don't think that that fundamental orientation towards the white hat, black hat view of the world has changed one iota. But the NCAA came in and after its investigation told UNLV, you have to get rid of this guy. That was a long and short of it. They gave him UNLV three options. One of them was just to leave the association altogether if they didn't like what the NCAA was doing. And that's just just really interesting insight into how the NCAA views the world. But the best option from the NCAA standpoint was for UNLV to disassociate 
from Tarkanian, basically fire him, which they did. Then Tarkanian sues UNLV in state court, and then they bring in the NCAA in that state court proceeding, claiming that the NCAA forced the UNLV administration and decision makers to fire Tarkanian. And because UNLV is a state university, the NCAA's coordination with UNLV constituted state action. And the trial court, after a lengthy trial, agreed and found that Tarkanian had been denied federal due process rights. And this judge, the trial judge, after a two-week trial, found that the NCAA had indeed coerced UNLV into making its decision to essentially fire Tarkanian and that that constituted state action because of the coordination between the NCAA and UNLV. And the trial judge in that case did not have much patience with the NCAA because he had access through the discovery process to behind-the-scenes communications in the NCAA national office and particularly in the enforcement and infractions team on staff, the employees of the NCAA. And there was some really bad stuff there. Tarkanian was Armenian, and there were some xenophobic comments made, just really out-of-control over-the-top comments that, if made today, would have had the person making those comments or anybody participating in conversations about those smears, they'd be marched out of the building. They'd be escorted out of the building (laughs) and wouldn't be given time to pack their belongings. And in one hearing, this judge characterized the behavior and the tactics of the NCAA enforcement staff as akin to the Ayatollah Khomeini and Adolf Eichmann. Now, that's pretty strong stuff, but this judge just had heard so much NCAA BS and had seen the real NCAA behind the scenes. And You can say, well, that was then, this is now. Yes and no. Part of the problem is that because of Tarkanian, the very same climate and culture that existed in the mid-1980s exists today in a different form. It's spit-shined and you're not going to have people, you hope you're not having people behind the scenes smearing the people they're regulating particularly since those people are the people who provide a product that pay for the national office salaries. But So the trial judge rules in Tarkanian's favor, says this is state action. The NCAA and the UNLV are tag-teaming this thing and then uh, issues an injunction that protects Tarkanian. The NCAA appeals and the case winds up in the Nevada State Supreme Court And the Supreme Court essentially upholds the trial court's ruling. It limits it a little bit. And then the NCAA appeals that case to the United States Supreme Court. And you have a right of direct appeal from a state Supreme Court. It's one way that you can go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the NCAA was saying basically that they are immune from federal due process requirements or any due process requirements because they are not a state actor. They were not acting as a government. And those federal protections, whether it's due process or any other constitutional protection, only apply to actors who are acting under the color of state law. So it doesn't reach private activity. It it reaches state action. And the U.S. Supreme Court 
in looking at the composition of the NCAA, agreed with the NCAA in that case, and in 1988 issued its opinion, finding that the NCAA was not required to provide federal due process protections in its investigations and in its enforcement and infractions process. That single decision, in my judgment, has resulted in an out-of-control NCAA. I would say that decision, as much as anything, has emboldened the NCAA into its culture and climate of arrogance, indifference, and belligerence to the rights of the individuals and institutions that are subject to its regulatory authority. And in all this discussion about realignment and the NCAA falling apart and what's the Power Five going to do or what's left of the Power Five, are they going to go out on their own and all that, one of the most important considerations here is going to be whether or not the Power Five want to go out into an environment where they may not have the benefit of the protections of the Tarkanian case, because if the Power Five pulls out, they do their own thing. And I've talked about this as well in prior episodes. They will not be able to hide in the private institution amateurism forest provided by a ton of Division Three schools. And when you look at the composition of the schools that would be in any new alliance. You look at the Big Ten, you look at the SEC, those are overwhelmingly, almost exclusively, big state public institutions. And an alliance like that, an association like that, operating completely outside of the NCAA, is going to have a very difficult time putting together their own infractions and enforcement process that is going to be free from scrutiny because that would be state action. And there's a Supreme Court case in a high school athletic association setting called Brentwood, which was decided in 2000, which came down on the other side of the fence from Tarkanian and said, because of the composition of that association, which was like 85% public institutions, then the action of that association, the state association was indeed state action. And that ruling would be right on point if the Power Five just goes out on their own. So one of the reasons I think that in some of this discussion about the infractions and enforcement process and these changes that were made just a few weeks ago, and then there were comments from Greg Sankey, the chair, the uh, commissioner of the SEC, <laughs> commenting on pulling back on the protections afforded by this independent investigative process. Yeah, have to think that if he's commenting on that and he's weighing in on that, he thinks it's relevant. And it's relevant because the Power Five is going to stay in the NCAA umbrella and they have enormous incentive to. And this case is a really good example of that. And I'll just say in that regard that in all these behind the scenes maneuverings, and there's no question that there's some power playing going on behind the scenes and the powerful football conferences have the upper hand, just as they always have. The Power Five have believed really since 2013, 2014, that they shouldn't be subject to the NCAA's infractions and enforcement process. And in my pay-for-play episodes, when I talked about the autonomy movement, the autonomy legislation movement that originated in 2013 and heading into 2014, it was passed into NCAA legislation in 2014. The proponents of that, the PAC-12, the SEC, and people who were making pitches to the Division I Board of Directors for autonomy status and protection, they were saying that the stakes for the Power Five schools are so different and so much higher than for the rest of the NCAA that they basically wanted to opt out of the NCAA's enforcement and infractions process. And it may very well be 
that in some of these discussions that are going on behind the scenes right now, and this quest, central question of whether the Power Five or what's left of it is going to stay in or out of the NCAA, they are looking at the possibility of an independent divisional status that is completely outside of Division One. You basically would have a fourth division that operates entirely independent of the rest of the NCAA, including enforcement and infractions. And we'll talk more about that maybe in another episode. But you have to understand that under Tarkanian, the NCAA can do whatever the hell they want to. And that's a ruling that applies to the NCAA, not to the individual schools. This applies to the National Association. The freedom from basic due process requirements is an extraordinary privilege and exemption from responsibility that applies only to the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And I don't think the Power Five can take that with them if they left. So again, whatever's going on behind the scenes and whatever this looks like on the backside, I think we, we need to really pay attention to the infractions and enforcement process. And that's one of the reasons that I really wanted to drill down on this constitutional committee, because when you're looking at aligning responsibilities and authorities, they're talking about the power of the national organization to regulate in college sports, and that has to run through its enforcement tools and its enforcement capabilities and jurisdiction. And that is the enforcement and infractions process. And that's why there's so much discussion about this. So when I saw the, this little slip into the agenda on the August 3rd board meeting, let me see if I can find that agenda here. Yeah, so here it is. And they got a whole list of things. And this was, remember, the meeting when the Kaplan gender equity report was on the table and the NCAA had to address it. And they throw in, as the, only the NCAA can with a straight face, uh, annual report on compliance with the NCAA sexual violence policy. Not a piece of legislation, a policy. And then we have, let's see, an update on legal and legislative landscape related to transgender athletic participation. You can't make this stuff up again. But obviously there's a list of 14 items and some of them are purely ministerial. Buried at the back, item number 10, NCAA Independent Accountability Oversight Committee update. And when I get to it, I'm going to read the release that came from the NCAA and then an article. There were a handful of articles, but this was buried. There was no intention here to focus on this. And there wasn't much media scrutiny of this or media attention given to it. And there was an article by a guy at uh, ESPN and it was a really interesting article. And I'll, I'll talk about that when I set the table for this really consequential action in, in this independent adjudicatory process that essentially cuts it off at, at its knees from an independent standpoint. But I want to talk for just a minute on how the NCAA took these very clear recommendations from the Commission on College Basketball and actually put them into NCAA legislation. And this is all contained in bylaw article 19 on the infractions program. And it is long and it is dense and it is eternally inconsistent and it is written by lawyers for lawyers. This provision, this section, this bylaw of the 451 page NCAA division one manual is the source of employment for hundreds, if not thousands of compliance officers, many of whom now have law degrees and are receiving six-figure salaries. So the NCAA took the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations and they inserted a provision titled Independent Accountability Resolutions by Law 19.11. And 
This did not go into effect until August of 2019. Some of the other recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball went into effect in August of 2018, but it took a little bit of time to put together the infrastructure for this new independent accountability resolution process. And there are basically two fundamental components of that. One is the investigative component, and that's run through what's called the Complex Case Unit Investigative Team. And the other is the Independent Resolution Panel. 15 members, private, outside the NCAA. They're not supposed to have a connection to the NCAA, but that's not always the case either. And I'll talk about that too. But these people are paid professionals and their job is to sit in panels of five and hear these complex cases, to work with the complex case unit and look at the quality of the investigation. They have the authority or originally had the authority to basically direct the complex case unit and work with it to developing a record, a defensible, reliable, independent record that could serve as a decision that's based in some basic integrity in which these high stakes, complex cases could be resolved. And despite its built-in conflicts of interest and the limitations imposed on it, the Commission on College Basketball did get a few things right. One was recognizing that in these high stakes cases that could have profound impact not just at the institutional level, but at the personal level for the people involved, and particularly the athletes who may be thrown under the bus here, either because they are declared ineligible or because they are having to live with penalties for conduct that occurred years and years ago. But I think the primary component of this high-stakes dynamic is money, and that if the NCAA comes in and it starts swinging its hammer and bringing down draconian penalties and scholarship limits or things that start looking like a death penalty, then the financial consequences, the institutional interest would be harmed in a way that requires a process for adjudicating alleged misconduct in a way that accounts for the severity of the consequences and the potential impact. And one of the things that the NCAA has been able to do because of this Tarkinian decision is that it, on the one hand, says, wait a minute, this isn't an adversary process. This is just a cooperative process. You know, we're all working together here. And if you don't cooperate with us, well, that's an independent process crime and you're going to pay for it. It's as if you were guilty, regardless of what the evidence might show. If you don't cooperate, then you pay a heavy price. Hell, that's better than a subpoena. <laughs> the refusal to cooperate is punished in a way that really eliminates what the evidence might have looked like had they cooperated. And they, they could get that stuff through a subpoena if they had subpoena power, and they certainly didn't want it. They want subpoena power. I hope they don't get it. But this cooperation principle is better than that because they don't have to go through any fact-finding. But under this principle of cooperation, which is really just another way to bring the hammer down on people in this process, the SWA makes it appear as if, for public relations purposes, that this is just a couple of interested parties who all have the same goal in mind, trying to reach a cooperative result in a way that makes everybody happy. That is absolute, complete nonsense. This is an adversary process. The NCAA comes in with the arrogance and the attitude of a rogue enforcement agency that has substantial powers at its disposal and no accountability. And they just do whatever the hell they want to do, knowing that 
there's really no vehicle for an institution or a coach or an athlete to challenge an NCAA decision on due process grounds because the NCAA is going to slap down a motion to dismiss and cite Tarkanian. And guess what? They'll be right and they'll win. And under Mark Emmert, the climate and culture of enforcement and infractions has gone to one thing and one thing only, and that is trying to enhance the NCAA's public image and its reputation. And that's why you have all this preening and this hypocritical flag-waving and principle-proclaiming and all, all the same garbage that has really gotten us to the place that we are right now. And a lot of that is a function of Mark Emmert's unique anti-leadership style and his need to run in front of cameras and in front of reporters and issue, you know, proclamations that make him look like the savior of college sports. He did that with Penn State and it came back to bite him in the butt. And it's that mentality that continues to run through enforcement and infractions. And when you're trying to portray this process as cooperative, it's not adversarial. And then in your investigations, you're relying on the dirtiest dirt you can get your hands on. And the NCAA tried to do that by intervening in the Gatto dis uh, case in 2019. And then you're using confidential informants and information from confidential informants that's based on hearsay and innuendo and rumor and bad faith. And then you're laundering that to get it in at a hearing. And then you are offering immunity to witnesses to basically rat out on the bad actors that you're trying to punish. You are acting as a federal prosecutorial agency, a federal investigative agency. And then you're also acting as the prosecutor and the judge. And that is not a process that should be permitted in America. And one of the things that Condoleezza Rice said after the report was released, and this is actually contained in the report, is that the NCAA is not a garden variety nonprofit. It is not like a country club who's trying to decide whether to punish or expel a member for driving the golf cart in restricted areas. This isn't a Mickey Mouse disciplinary case before an elementary school student conduct panel trying to determine whether Jimmy really stole Joey's candy in the lunchroom. <laughs> in that scenario, if it's at a public elementary school, those kids, Jimmy would actually have some due process rights, due process rights that aren't afforded people in the NCAA's enforcement and infractions process. But the NCAA wants to be treated as if they're just some benign, benevolent nonprofit association just trying to stand by its principles. And this is all a cooperative process. No, they are acting like the CIA the FBI, federal prosecution team, and the judge and the jury. And they view the stakes as high enough to employ those kinds of tactics to achieve their goal. And their goal isn't the integrity of college sports. That's ridiculous. Their goal is to make it appear to the public as if they are the good cops keeping the streets clean for all of the stakeholders in big-time college sports and everybody can rest assured that the NCAA is on the job and their team has only the best interests of the NCAA and the member institutions and the integrity of college sports at heart. So looking at how this is put together, one of the first things you have to ask yourself is who puts this into action? How is this being put into action? Who gives this independent adjudicatory process and the people in it its 
authorities, who decides what it can do, what it can't do, and who has the power to come in and make any changes. And under the way the NCAA has put this thing together, it is the NCAA and NCAA insiders are making the very decisions that the Commission on College Basketball tried to circumvent by the very existence of this independent process. So the first and obvious questions are, who appoints and has control over the people in this complex case unit? And then also in the independent hearing panel selection. And to do to look at that, you have to look at this bureaucracy. The NCAA set up really a separate bureaucracy to run this independent accountability resolution process through. And there are four components of this process. There is the Independent Accountability Oversight Committee, and they have overarching responsibility for the implementation of this independent accountability process. Then you have the Infractions Referral Committee, and I talked about that in the last episode, and that's the committee that fields a request to take a case out of the old process and put it into the new process or to initiate the process under the new process. And then the third component is the actual independent resolution panel that I talked about, these 15 members that are supposed to be completely outside the NCAA. And then the fourth is this complex case unit. So who is the Independent Accountability Oversight Committee that has this overarching responsibility for the independent process. The composition under uh, 9-11 2.1.1, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to say the relevant bylaw. This is a ridiculous level of bureaucracy here, but it says the independent accountability oversight committee shall consist of five members, including three independent members of the board of governors, the chair of, of the board of directors and the vice chair of the board of directors. And they're talking about the division one board of directors. So all of the oversight committee members come from existing NCAA governing boards. And even though these independent members of the board of governors are supposed to be outside to the in-system conflicts of interest, they, these people are appointed by the existing board of governors. <laughs> there's no way there's going to be an independent member of the Board of Governors that doesn't buy in to the NCAA's construction of reality. That's why they're on the board. And they're impressive people, but they buy into the NCAA's construction of reality. Then having two members of the NCAA Division I Board of Directors is really just a joke because the Division I Board of Directors is ground zero for all of the interests of big-time powerful football and to a lesser extent big time powerful men's basketball and they are there to promote the business interest and the commercial interest and the revenue streams of the big time college sports juggernaut and who appoints those five members you got it the ncaa board of governors and then let's see the duties and authorities of that independent accountability oversight are to consult with the board of directors in revising operating procedures for the independent process. Appoint the independent resolution panel, committee on infractions and infractions appeal committee members on the infractions referral committee, and the independent external investigators and advocates on the complex case unit. So the duties and authorities of this independent accountability oversight committee include substantial involvement in 
putting together the independent resolution panels. So you have this independent accountability oversight committee that's supposed to remove this from all of the influences, the conflicts of interest and the influences in the existing NCAA governance structure. And it comes back around to having those very people in charge of deciding who is on this panel. And then we go to the referral committee, the infractions and referral committee. And again, this has five members and you have basically the same structure. You have one independent resolution panel member. So I guess technically outside of the NCAA process, then a committee on infractions member, it's an insider. Then you have infractions appeals committee member, that's also an insider. Then the division one council chair and vice chair, clearly NCAA insider. So you really don't have much independence there. And who appoints them? Well, the independent accountability oversight committee. So again, that makes it appear as if there's some independence, but when you go back and look at how the independent accountability oversight committee is put together and what its authorities are, you're back to NCAA insiders, which is just the way they like it. And then in talking about the independent resolution panel, they say that they cannot be staff members at an NCAA member institution or conference. And I guess that presumably would include them not being employed by the NCAA. <laughs> but in fact, they are. And I'll talk about a way they could have done this here in just a minute to avoid all of this inside dealing. And then they talk about the duties of the independent resolution panel, these 15 people who are going to be deciding these complex cases. And the very first one is find facts related to alleged NCAA constitution and bylaw violations. That provision says find facts, not accept facts from NCAA national office employees who have absolutely no accountability and over whom you have absolute no control. The Independent Resolution Panel has no control over NCAA enforcement staff. And then there's a section on the complex case unit. And here's where it gets really interesting and really offensive. The complex case unit. Remember, this is the investigative arm of this new independent process that is designed to mitigate and avoid all of the built-in conflicts of interest and shortcomings in the old system, which was run through NCAA national office employees in the enforcement staff department. So it says the composition of the complex case unit shall consist of one or more independent external investigators, one or more independent external advocates, and select enforcement staff members. Now, I, I guess you could make a plausible case that you might want to rely on some enforcement staff in a consulting capacity or you know, have people there that you can communicate with, but having them actually part of the process defeats the process's very purpose. And now we get to this, and this is just mind-blowing. The method of selecting these complex case unit investigators and advocates is done this way. So this method of selection section says, the independent accountability oversight committee shall appoint the independent external investigators and advocates on the complex case unit from individuals nominated by the select enforcement staff members on the complex case unit. I mean, that's just stunning. So the actual investigators, the actual advocates, the people who are responsible for finding the facts, 
and for getting the enforcement staff completely out of the equation, or at least having a process that they don't control, is going to be dictated and selected by the enforcement staff. <laughs> the way this thing is written, they say the Independent Accountability Oversight Committee shall appoint. So you read that and you think, oh, okay, well, there's some removal here from the enforcement staff. And then they sneak in this language that that appointment can only come from individual investigators and advocates that are nominated by the enforcement staff. So do you think <laughs> the NCAA enforcement staff is going to recommend an investigation team or an investigation process that's going to second guess what they do or replace what they do? I mean, that is just a stunning built-in conflict of interest that makes a mockery of the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations. And with that context, now let's turn to the NCAA Division I Board of Directors' decision and the adoption of that decision by the Board of Governors on August 3rd of 2021, just a few weeks ago, that now requires the complex case unit, these investigators that have been hired, to operate completely outside of the normal infractions and enforcement process, including the investigative phase that would typically be done by NCAA insiders. They've said to this complex case unit, you have no choice but to accept the investigative work and the findings of fact that are done in the first instance by the NCAA's enforcement staff, these national office employees who are the problem. They are the epicenter of the problem in terms of fairness and reliability and furthering the values of the association. They're the problem. And now they are the only show in town. So uh, I want to turn now to the NCAA statement on this change at its August 3rd meeting and then some of the comments from other people in the limited coverage that this got. This guy was very off the radar screen. But before I get to that, I just want to note a couple of other things about the way that the NCAA interpreted the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations, because under the existing regulations, under the existing legislation that the NCAA put together to make this independent resolution process functional, they make clear that the decisions of the panel are final. There's no review. There's no appeal. And that is just antithetical to even the most basic notions of due process, particularly in a system which is required to be secret. All the people involved in these investigations have to sign secrecy statements so that none of the information that they have access to in this corrupt process can be put out into the public domain. And when somebody does that <laughs> against the wishes of the NCAA, they go apoplectic. And in the next episode, I'm going to talk about some of these principles as they played out in real time in the NCAA infractions and enforcement action that arose from this basketball scandal. And this was referred to the independent resolution review process, and that involves NC State. And that case is just a perfect illustration 
of how far afield NCAA went from the Commission on College Basketball recommendations and how the current structure, the way that it exists now, is just indefensible and puts institutions in an impossible position because there's, there are no good options under this process, either the old one or the new one. NC State lets the cat out of the bag and share some information in its response that made it into the public domain that I'm sure the NCAA didn't want out there, but it's a really good case study. So we'll get to that soon. But one of the things that's important to note is that in the Commission on College Basketball recommendations, they say that the panel should operate under the rules of the American Arbitration Association or analogous rules, and that the decisions will be final. So this independent resolution panel would issue a final decision, but it would be subject to review under the Federal Arbitration Act. So there was a vehicle for appeal. There was a vehicle for review. It wasn't in the context of a more formal process, like a lawsuit or an administrative hearing, like a federal hearing, but it is a process and there is an opportunity to appeal. And in that regard, in this invocation of the American Arbitration Association, I just want to say that on this independence issue, the NCAA, in implementing the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball, they could have simply sent all of this stuff to the American Arbitration Association. It is a massive organization and it serves industries across the spectrum in America. And it is designed to be a credible alternative dispute resolution process that's trustworthy. And all of the people that serve as arbitrators are drawn from a, a pool that are under the umbrella of the American Arbitration Association, not under a, any entity or institution that has obvious conflicts of interest. So what the NCAA could have done here is simply send all of these complex cases to the American Arbitration Association. And on their website, they promote the use of their process to resolve collegiate professional and sports business disputes. And they offer mediation services in those areas. They offer all kinds of dispute resolution options. And they talk about resolving collegiate athletic conference disputes, like when schools leave conferences and that kind of thing. They don't specifically talk about violations of NCAA rules, but under the logic of the Commission on College Basketball, that could run through the American Arbitration Association. And if that happened, the NCAA would have absolutely nothing to do with it. And then the result would come out. It would be something the parties consented to because the arbitration process has some uh, consensual features. First of all, parties have to agree to, to, to it. And that's kind of one of the underlying philosophies. That's not true in this existing structure because the institutions and people being investigated, they don't have a choice and they don't get to select the arbitrators. In an arbitration process, there is a built-in check and the pool of arbitrators is screened and parties have the opportunity to object if there's somebody who has a real or perceived conflict of interest. That doesn't happen in the NCAA process. So the NCAA has basically just kind of flipped off the Commission on College Basketball and the institutions and interested people affected by their regulations. They're just saying, up yours, and if you don't like it, see NCAA versus Tarkanian. That's what this process looks like. And there were alternatives that could have solved all the problems and furthered the goals of the Commission on College Basketball. And that's still available. They could still do that today. But here's the problem with that. The NCAA 
does not want to relinquish control of any process that could go to its illusion of integrity or in any way interfere with its revenue streams. And that is why the NCAA, with a power five right there lockstep with them, okay, during this perfect storm from 2019 to the present, going on an imperial march through, through the Senate and through federal courts and ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court, to make sure that no outside regulatory authority, whether it is state legislatures, federal courts, Congress, or any outside authority that might interfere with their autonomy, is taken off the table to completely eliminate those external decision makers. And the same thinking went into how they implemented the Commission on College Basketball's recommendation for a truly separate and independent track for resolving complex cases. So let me just read this release. And this was on the NCAA propaganda website on August 4th, the day after the meeting. It's titled D1 Board Adopts APR Change for Transfers. That's irrelevant. And then there's a subtitle that says Independent Accountability Resolution Process Also Adjusted. And under that heading, they have a separate section for the Independent Accountability Resolution Process. And let me just read some things from it. The board, meaning the Division I Board of Directors, also approved an immediate change to the independent accountability resolution process, made at the recommendation of the Independent Accountability Oversight Committee. So right there, in that initial framing, they're making it seem as if the Independent Accountability Oversight Committee is this independent decision maker that's reviewing this process and is making a decision of integrity, but it's made up of NCAA insiders. <laughs> including two board members, two members of the Division I Board of Directors. I don't say that. And then it goes on. The complex case unit will accept the investigative work of the enforcement staff unless the unit can demonstrate a compelling reason why additional investigation is required. Okay. So right there, you have basically undermined the very purpose of the complex case unit and basically rendered it irrelevant. So what's the purpose of the complex case unit now? And there are five high-powered firms that have been retained as part of the complex case unit. And from the very beginning of the formation of this complex case unit, there were allegations of conflict of interest because one of the firms was Louis Free's firm. I think it was Free International is the name of the company. And they're like so many people in this industry. There's a whole cottage industry of companies that have former high-level federal officials and lawyers and dispute resolution people that offer services to companies in the nature of risk assessment and in, in internal investigations and all that kind of stuff. And there are five companies in that mold that have been identified as for the complex case unit, three on the investigation side, two on the quote-unquote advocacy side, but three got in on that business. And there's evidence going back really to his involvement in the Penn State case that he was trying to pitch NCAA business for a venture just like this. And it just smelled to high heaven. And I'll talk more about that in other episodes because that really gets into some other really big picture things. But you have the complex case unit basically being neutered by this decision. And here is what they say as the justification. The Oversight Committee, which has expressed concerns about the delay in the resolution of cases referred to the independent process, 
determined that much of the delay is the result of efforts by the complex case unit to reinvestigate cases that the enforcement staff thoroughly investigated. Accepting the enforcement staff's results will speed the process significantly without compromising the goals of the independent accountability resolution process. Committee members think the changes are effective immediately. Immediately. I mean, something's going on here. That just doesn't make any sense. So you have this process, and it's a new process, and you can bet your bottom dollar that NCAA insiders and power players are scared to death of anything new that threatens the status quo that they have, have complete control over. So even in this corrupted process in selecting these complex case unit people, you still have the potential for someone in that process who doesn't buy into NCAA propaganda or hasn't been cultured into it, looking at some of the tactics here and saying, wait a minute, <laughs> you have lawyers here and you have people who have, and judges, you have some former judges and you have smart people who understand principles of due process and fairness and re the reliability of evidence and witnesses and all those things, who may be looking at some of these issues and saying, this is, this, we can't do it this way. We can't operate this way. And that was the very purpose of the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball. That process has just essentially been eliminated. And you have to ask yourself why. And this notion that it is a speed issue, that it is an efficiency issue, is so ridiculous on its face that it, it just is a red flag. It is a massive red flag. And who, again, who the hell knows? what's going on behind the scenes and what in interests are advocating for various outcomes. But this is one of these things, when you're looking to try to peer into what's happening behind the scenes, this is a red flag. And then when you see that the ESPN guy who wrote about this, let me pull out this article. So this is written on August 5th of 2021, and it's titled the NCAA to speed up investigation of major infractions cases, some of which have lingered for years. <laughs> really? That's a problem with the NCAA investigative process? So it says, launched in August 2019, the IARP, that's the independent process, has yet to fully adjudicate a school case. So that makes it sound like they've been dragging their heels. And then it says, they talk about the Division I Board of Directors approved immediate changes that will allow the IARP RP's complex case unit to accept the investigative work of the NCAA's enforcement staff. And then they say, un they do say, unless the unit can demonstrate a compelling reason why additional investigation is required. That's a, an interesting way of putting it because what that provision actually says is you can't refuse to accept the enforcement staff's work unless you have a compelling reason. And then they fall back on the independent accountability oversight committee and suggesting that there's this independence and separation and that this was a well-considered recommendation. And then this ESPN article goes on to say that the James Wiseman case, the Memphis basketball player, James Wiseman case that I've talked about before, was the first case accepted by the independent resolution panel. And that was on March 4th of 2020. And then they say, Five other cases related to a federal investigation into bribes and other corruption in college basketball involving NC State, Louisville, Kansas, LSU, and Arizona were also accepted by the Independent Resolution Panel over the next year. And they say NC State is the only case related to the federal investigation that has a hearing date scheduled before the Independent Resolution Panel. And then the article pivots to a quote from uh, Southeastern Conference Commissioner Greg Sankey, 
And he's criticized the NCAA for not moving faster with this independent process. And that's, this again, this is a tell. This is very interesting. And they quote Sankey and he says, those accused of violations deserve a fair and timely outcome. And those who compete against those, the article says, cases involving Arizona, Kansas, Louisville, and NC State have been thoroughly investigated by NCAA enforcement staff and resulted in detailed notices of allegations. That wasn't the case with LSU, according to records released to ESPN by the university last week. And now they're trying to say, well, LSU is dragging its feet here. And that was the case where there was uh, the LSU coach, Will Wade, was on tape, on audio tapes, saying some stuff that doesn't look good for him. He wasn't prosecuted, by the way. That didn't rise to the level of a prosecutorial offense in the eyes of the prosecutors, the FBI in the Southern District of New York. There's, again, another conversation. But they basically make it seem as if the investigators, the independent investigators in LSU are unnecessarily reviewing the work of the enforcement staff. And again, the entire purpose of the complex case unit is to avoid the obvious conflicts of interest that have arisen in the old process. So what's happened here, and I'm going to tease this out in the NC State case, is that the way that the Commission on College Basketball envisioned the role of this complex case unit, they weren't going to be relying at all on the investigative work of the enforcement staff. But in these transition cases, there's been this template where the enforcement and infraction staff goes in knowing, I believe, that these cases are well-suited for the complex case unit and this independent review process. And they're doing investigative work. I mean, they need to keep their jobs too, right? There's some job protection at issue here. Nobody's talking about that for crying out loud. But they're going in and doing these investigations. And under this new importation rule that was effective in August of 2018, after the commission released its report, they can just borrow evidence and facts and suggestions and rumor and innuendo, whatever the hell they want to bring in from the prior cases. And they have these criminal cases that were conducted in the Southern District of New York, most of which uh, were completed in 2018. At least they had a jury verdict. And they have borrowed from that and they're throwing together these cases. And now they're saying that that's the only information that the independent review panel can rely on once the case has been submitted for referral and accepted by the independent uh, resolution review committee. And this just turns the recommendations of the commission on college basketball on their head. It just doesn't make sense. Let me also then just go through the list of these cases. The only cases that have been submitted for the independent resolution process. So you have the the Memphis case, and that was March 4th of 2020. Then on May 18th of 2020, the independent referral committee accepted the NC State case. Then on July 1st, 2020, they accepted the Kansas case. September 23rd of 2020, they accepted the LSU case. Then on December 17th of 2020, they accepted the Arizona case. And then on February 19th of 2021, just eight months ago, they accepted the Louisville case. All those cases. Let's let's take the Weissman case out of it. Okay. Let's look at the five cases that have been referred since the panel was up and running. And the facts are really fresh. You have five cases all originating from this college basketball scandal and these cases that came out of the Southern District of New York. And I'm going to go into some detail about that 
procedurally and factually when I talk about this NC State case, but you're complaining about delay. So in the NC State uh, case, for example, which is the farthest along, the investigative process by the old system people, by the Committee on Infractions and the enforcement staff, that took a year in a case that was the product of largely borrowed and imported facts that the NCAA enforcement staff didn't have to find at all. They just cherry-picked whatever they wanted from that, those criminal cases and threw together a case and then said, you know, full steam ahead. The better question, in my judgment, is why didn't the NCAA hold off on any enforcement staff investigatory action until these cases were referred to the complex case unit and accepted, and then you have the investigative team designed to handle these very cases, dealing with the investigation from start to finish. And then the problem with this approach of having the infractions team doing the work and then having it imposed on the complex case unit team is that you have two completely different processes and any biases that existed in the old bad process that are brought into the new process make it almost impossible for someone who is the subject of an investigation to challenge those findings. And in the new process, there's no right of appeal. So this decision by the board of directors to force the independent process to accept the work of the enforcement staff and then put it into a process where there's no right of appeal. There's at least a right of appeal in the old system. There's an appellate process. There's none in this independent review process. No right of appeal. And again, they just walked all over the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations in that regard by running it through a, a structure that ran through the American Arbitration Association or something like it, or through their rules or through their philosophies. HWA just said, uh-uh. <laughs> they have pieced together from these two systems, the worst of both systems, and then put it into essentially one enforcement track where the schools have virtually no way to challenge the facts as they've been gathered, and they have no way to appeal that process. It just stinks. It stinks to high heaven. And from a timing standpoint, it doesn't pass the blush test. So you have to ask yourself, what are the motivations here? We don't know that yet. I have my suspicions. And those will be informed by what is coming out of this constitutional committee and then comments from people like Sankey. Because why is he worried about this? If the, if the, the Power Five are just going to you know, peel off and do their own thing, he wouldn't really have any reason to comment on this. But it obviously is important to him, which tells me they plan on staying under the NCAA umbrella and maybe that they want to have complete control of the enforcement and infractions process. And Sankey has been very critical of that process. He's been really forthright in his criticisms about the NCAA. I, I like that. <laughs> you know, somebody of his stature in this needs to just say that out loud and then say well, the system isn't working, but there's something going on here that simply can't be explained by this justification that's been offered. Because when you compare the timelines in these cases. These cases were really haven't even had the opportunity to go through the process. Certainly not the process recommended by the Commission on College Basketball because that doesn't exist. But this process that the NCAA put together from those recommendations, that process hasn't been given a chance to work. And again, if this falls into the you can't make this stuff up category because we have this Baylor decision. And that's a football decision. I'm not going to put on my tinfoil hat here, but I might at some point in the enforcement and infractions process by ambush here. 
relates to basketball. All these schools are basketball schools. Baylor was football. But n- nobody was complaining about how long it took the, the Baylor team to put together their stuff. And remember, the Baylor case was rejected for referral to the complex case unit. But even at the time of that referral, the NCAA's in-house enforcement staff spent two years investigating that case. And from the time that Baylor went to the NCAA in May of 2016 to August of 2021, when that decision was finally published, you have five years. And that is okay, but a process that, that just got launched in 2019, the structure just got launched in 2019. And for cases that weren't even referred until late 2020 or early of 2021, you cannot say that those are taking too long. It's ridiculous on its face. And I also note that some of the delays in that process and some of the delays in the NC State process that I'm going to talk about in the next episode are the product of the NCAA's enforcement staff and the people on the Committee on Infractions slowing down the process on purpose. And in the Baylor case, that was done explicitly for the purpose of allowing the NCAA and its investigators to let the factual records in outside cases be more well-developed so that they could benefit from those findings and import them under this new legislation to basically substitute for the investigative process. And the Committee on Infractions public decision on Baylor explicitly acknowledges that and drops a footnote to a delay that occurred in that process that was the direct product of the chair of the Committee on Infractions saying, slow down because we have to be mindful of these other cases and we need to be able to rely on that evidence. And then in this NC State case, the chair of the Committee on Infractions that wound up referring the case, she instituted what amounted to almost a 90-day stay of the proceedings so the NCAA could uh, step back and look at their chessboard and decide how they wanted to manage it and then uh, what piece they wanted to move next. And that piece was NC State. They have no problem with delay and an inefficient process when it serves the purposes of the bureaucratic state and the in-system stakeholder interests. But when you have a process that might get to some of the facts that the in-system stakeholders don't want the world to know, they shut that damn thing down. And that's what happened here. This thing got shut down and it got shut down fast. And it says, this is an immediate change. And the last sentence of the NCAA's propaganda news release says, the changes are effective immediately. So, you know, again, if I'm putting on my tinfoil hat, I'm asking myself, is there somebody out in that complex case unit team? And I don't know how these cases are assigned. You've got these five companies and you don't know how the resources are allocated, but if you've got one, two, three, four, five, five, maybe six active cases in the independent process right now, you've got 15 panel members and you've got three investigative companies But they're spreading themselves out a little bit, you would think. And if that's the case, the NCAA loses some control despite all the built-in conflicts of interest and the fact that all these complex case unit people are basically selected by the enforcement staff in the first instance. But if you have smart independent attorneys and former judges and people who've been around the block here looking at some of this information, they may be raising questions that the NCAA doesn't want raised or they're getting to evidence 
that is inconvenient or maybe how the NCAA got some of this evidence. And that goes back to some of my suspicions about the extent of the cooperation between the NCAA and the FBI early on in this process. And this is going to be a whole nother series of episodes and analysis. But when you go back and you start connecting dots from Mark Emmert's uh, tenure in 2010 forward, and then the Penn State case, and then Louis Free in the Southern District of New York, and the FBI, and all this stuff. And then the people who are uh, involved along the way who keep uh, resurfacing in different contexts for different purposes, but it's all the same people. You start to ask yourself, what's going on here? There's some stuff here that just doesn't add up. And I'm going to get into that as well. But there's something happening here that cannot be explained by the justifications offered by the NCAA and in-system stakeholders like Greg Sankey. So who knows? Maybe there's some innocent explanation that when it's all on the table will make perfect sense, but it doesn't look that way to me on its face right now. So let's go ahead and close this thing out. And then I'm going to talk about this NC State case. It's really interesting. I, I really like the fact that NC State, they played their cards pretty well here and they didn't have a lot, they don't have a lot of room to maneuver because of this corrupt system. But we'll talk about that. So I just want to thank you for joining and it's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.